Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Father, can you please uh, open us up in prayer this morning? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we ask you to illuminate us with your divine wisdom, inflame us with your divine charity, help us to be faithful to all the graces you want to give us, so that we may join you with the angels and saints in heaven one day. And we ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for having me once again. It's, um, it's great to return to this issue because yoga is such a complex issue that um, I'm sure those who um, are familiar with it in a scholarly way would be uh, surprised at how little we addressed a number of crucial issues. So I'll, I'll just begin by um, reviewing what we've said before, and, um, and then we will look at um, what we can say about how Catholics should respond to yoga, because that's ultimately I, a, a lot of the questions that we got. Many people um, sent wonderful questions, and I, I was very happy to receive them. And so I'm going to try to address as many as I can today. So we won't be covering the history of yoga or um, some of its many sources. And instead, I'm going to try to systematically address some of the crucial issues that Catholics will have when uh, thinking about what yoga is. So let's look at um, our first slide where we look at... Um, what are the different positions that people can have on yoga? And if you recall, um, there are three basic positions. One is what I call the integralist position, which says that Christianity and yoga are completely incompatible because they're integral wholes and there's, there's no overlap. Ultimately, this view sees yoga as something contrary to Christianity because of its own spiritual dimensions. And those things just can't be aligned with Christianity. The next is a kind of a nominalist position, which is to say Christianity and yoga are in name only realities. And so therefore they're completely compatible. You can call it yoga or not, Christianity or not. Ultimately, these things are just names we give things and the deeper reality underneath them is totally compatible. So this view almost has a kind of a relativistic spirituality. And then finally, there's what I call the adaptationist position. And this is people who suggest that Christianity and yoga are partly compatible, depending on what element we're discussing. 
And so that is going to be um, part of the question today, namely, are there elements in yoga that can be adapted? And, um, and so let's, let's walk through, though, in order to understand if there are things that can be adapted, and if so, how. Let's go back to the, the fundamental definition of what yoga is. And here we'll look at the etymology. And if you recall, we, we walked through this. It's related to the Sanskrit uh, word or the root, yug, which is the same in English as to yoke. And one of the famous commentators on the work by Patanjali, his name is Vyasha, he said, yoga is samadhi. Well, what's that? Well, it's union of the individual self with the transcendental self. Now, if you look at the definitions of yoga, the classic definitions, people will say that it's the cessation of the disturbances of the mind. But that is a means to stop the disturbance of, this, of the mind in order to promote this union. And so both of those need to go together. It's a technique by which we stop the mind's uh, wanderings or its disturbances. The techniques help the mind to stop wandering. And then that leads to a kind of a union. So, so the, the deepest part of the definition, I think, is this element, union of the individual self with this transcendental self. Some people will call that supreme spirit. Some people will call it God. But yoga doesn't have a notion of God as a single personal being, and we'll see why that is. So, so the first question that's going to arise then, is there a yoga spirituality? We looked at one of the founders of modern yoga. Here we, we see uh, BKS Iyengar in one of the classic yoga poses. And we noticed last time that he says that this is a divine pose. This pose can help you to unite yourself with divinity and to discover divinity with, within. So the question, is there yoga spirituality? Well, first, people will say that, no, there isn't. Because if yoga is ultimately relativistic, syncretistic, then there is no yoga spirituality. Yoga can adopt any kind of spirituality. And people who have this idea, they might even, if they go more deeply into uh, ancient yoga texts, like what is called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, this is a, a text that was written in the, what they call the Middle Ages, the 1500s um, AD, that describes different kinds of practices, abstinence, for instance, from meat, or observances, moral things that people ought to do. They ought to exercise compassion, for instance. And people say, okay, well, maybe, maybe all yoga is going to have some sort of um, ethical component. And these are sometimes called the yama and the niyama uh, practices in yoga as a preparation, in fact, to do those poses. So they might, they might admit some kind of ethical element. But what I would argue is if we understand yoga, once again, as yoking yourself or as a union with this divine supreme self, then yoga is a technique, but it's also a spiritual goal. And so if it's a spiritual goal, then there is necessarily a spirituality to yoga. Yoga is not just a neutral reality. Yoga ultimately is going to have a kind of essence to itself. Now, like almost everything else, uh, <laughs> the idea of even saying that yoga has an essence, some people will disagree with this. Um, but we'll have to set some of those scholarly arguments aside. 
Now, the next thing people might say is, okay, maybe there is some kind of spiritual element to yoga, some depth within it that inclines the individual toward this spirit or tries to aim you toward unification with this uh, divine essence that exists in everything. But there are lots of different yogas. So how can we can say there's just one yoga spirituality? Um, We talked last time about how some Muslims in the time of the Mughal Empire, that they practiced yoga. And even now, there are some Buddhists who use the term yoga to describe some of their own exercises. In Tibet, there are some yogis, and, um, and they don't seem to be Hindu. Well, I think the response to this is there are many common elements in all the different kinds of yoga. That's how we can even use the name, that there has to be something in common. And often, um, these spiritual elements are things like the idea of the chakras in, um, in classic yoga. There's a notion that there are different nodes within your body going down to your spine. And each of these different nodes has a center and there, and the center is going to be a spiritual, as it were, uh, element within you of your subtle body, not your physical body that you can unlock by means of different yoga postures. And then there's ultimately going to be a chakra that's supposed to be right here, your third eye, and you can open it up by means of certain postures. Now, one thing to notice is in, um, in the history of yoga debates, among the yogis themselves in India, they actually disagreed about how many chakras there are. Nowadays, people think that there's a, a specific number. They might say nine or seven, but there was a huge disagreement. Some yogis said six, some said 13. And, and so there we can say, the idea of a chakra is more closely united to yoga, but it's even, even the specific elements that a lot of people use nowadays, those are one branch or development. Okay, well, what about mudras? In, um, in yoga, we have not only the postures, but also there are these you know, different ways of using your hands. And these are seem to be as sort of a symbolic way of receiving energy or some kind of power from the universe. Those are often uh, parts of nearly all kinds of yoga. As we saw in the picture with um, BKS Iyengar, he has his hands out actually in a mudra while he's also doing the physical posture. All right. Well, I think underneath all of these different kinds of yoga, the spiritual and the spirituality of yoga is going to be something like this. It involves some kind of physical posture, some kind of meditation, and it involves a belief. And these beliefs are going to be that you can transform yourself by means of these techniques, whatever the techniques are. And just as alchemy was seen to transmute a base metal like lead into gold, so by means of these techniques, you can transform yourself from being a normal, ordinary human being to being something divine. And so the way to understand the spirituality of yoga has been compared to alchemy, this transmutation of a natural thing into something that's more valuable or a higher realization of this divine potential. To put it briefly, yoga spirituality is this. The, the, your body is the vehicle for your spiritual perfection. Now, if you're thinking about what is yoga, and now we have this some idea of spirituality, I want, to, I want to talk about the Catholic understanding of the fonts of morality. And there are three fonts, and I'm going to walk through each one in order. 
because often when people say, well, there may be a yoga spirituality, but what about my intention? What if I intend something good? And a lot of people uh, asked me questions like, well, but Father, what if I pray um, the rosary while I'm doing yoga? Or what if I think of Jesus? What if my mantra is Maranatha, which is in the book of Revelation? Well, the first thing we have to do when we're, when we're analyzing the morality of an action, we have to ask, what is its object? What is it objectively? St. John Paul II, in his encyclical Veritati Splendor, he says very clearly, the object of the act is that which measures the morality. In other words, what is it objectively? Not just what do I think it is or how do I feel, but what is it on the objective plane? And there are some things that are objectively bad to do. For instance, abortion or idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, it's worshiping a false god. Idolatry is continually condemned in scripture. There's no time in which idolatry is okay. Idolatry might include making a pact with a demon, offering up a sacrifice for the demon, inviting this demon into your life, which is witchcraft, or invoking a spirit to come to your aid, some spirit that is aside from God or angels or your um, or the, the saints. So this is going to be objectively bad. The object of idolatry is always evil. Now, some people can involve themselves in some objectively evil act, and they don't always know it. So, for instance, um, uh, I, I worked with a woman who um, she was having terrible dreams, and she didn't know why. And it, like this kind of evil face would appear to her in her dream. And, um, and I tried to discover what it was. And eventually I realized that she had around her neck a necklace with this little curved horn. Maybe you've seen this. Some Italians will wear this. And, um, and often these curved horns have a kind of superstitious element. Sometimes they receive them from gypsies and they've actually been cursed. So um, I invited the woman if she wanted to be free from you know, these bad dreams and this sense of oppression while she was sleeping to destroy this, uh, this necklace. And, um, and after she did, it was gone. And she asked me, she says, Father Ezra, why is it that this, this necklace bothered me, even though, you know, I, I didn't curse it. I didn't invite the demon into my life. And I said, well, well, the answer is the object itself was a problem because it held a curse. And the curse was there, whether you knew it or not. Another example of this is that some things have effects on them, uh, on us, when we use them. Because when we use it, we open ourselves up into this spiritual influence. And so, for instance, many Catholics are familiar with using a Ouija board. Uh, a Ouija board, I mean, sold by Milton Bradley. You can actually buy this in uh, some stores. And um, people think it's just a game. But the fact is, many exorcists will tell you that Ouija boards are a portal to demonic influence. So, so things can actually affect us because of what it is, even, even if we are not fully aware of it. Children, if they use a Ouija board, can actually come to contact demonic spirits, and um, and they can come under their really negative influence. Now, some things um, have gained a meaning in life that cannot really be redeemed, even if we try. This this thing is so united with its symbolic significance that we really cannot try to uh, make it mean something else. So, for instance, if um, if you had a, a swastika and you carried around the swastika flag with you, 
and you go into a synagogue. And of course, the Jewish people would be scandalized. What are you doing? This is a Nazi flag. You're like, oh, no, no. For me, the swastika is just a sign of a pinwheel. It's this nice little image. Well, the fact is that it's so united to the Nazi ideology that you can't just use it for whatever you want. The symbol, ha the symbol has now been appropriated by this culture, and this is what it is. Or, for instance, the cross. Universally, everywhere you look, if you have a crucifix, everybody knows this indicates Christianity. Muslims wouldn't put up a crucifix in a mosque, and we wouldn't find atheists putting a crucifix in their home. The symbol has now been so united to its own history, it can't be used for something else. And, and there are many other instances like this. So this is what we mean by the objective nature of the thing, is this is what it is. Whether you like it or not, the cross, the swastika, the Ouija board, the cursed necklace, or whatever it is, these things have power and meaning, and they, they have this power and meaning whether or not we recognize it. Now, the next font of morality is, um, is the end or the intention. And this is why are you doing something? And so, for instance, a person, you know, the, the young woman who spoke with me about this necklace she had, well, she wore it because it was given to her by her grandmother. And, and this shows us that the intention is the goal that we place for the thing. But the thing may have its own power, right? So, for instance, you can, you can intend something good by carrying out around a swastika. Perhaps you could, if you were kind of ignorant. But everybody else is going to look at the symbol as what it is, even if you don't quite understand. So typically, um, when we're asking the question, why are you doing this? That can be answered in a number of ways. So for instance, people are saying, um, why are you doing yoga? Many, many studies show most people in the West begin doing yoga for physical reasons, either because they have a back injury or they want better health, they want to lose some weight, they want more flexibility. Most people, that's, that's why they start yoga. And so we can say that's their intention. But if you're doing something that bears within it its own power, then your intention is going to be subsumed within that larger thing. I'll, I'll give you an example. So for instance, um, you know, everybody has, uh, almost everybody has a cell phone. You can say, I intend to use this cell phone to call my family. Great. But sometimes don't you receive... Um, uh, you know, either like phone calls or text messages from scammers. You know, the, I remember um, back in the day when everybody had a landline, boy, we got telephone calls all the time from telemarketers. You say, well, that wasn't my intention. No, it's not. But it's embedded within the very possibility of the phone. People can misuse it and they can misuse it to hurt you. So sometimes you can have a thing and you have a good intention for the thing, but it still has its own power. And so, um, some things we're going to notice, no matter what your intention is, cannot be directed to God. Because the thing in itself takes such a concrete form directed toward evil that it can't really be used for some good. The easiest example of this is what we noticed before, abortion or idolatry. You can't say, oh, I'm going to commit this abortion in order to give glory to God. What a blasphemy. And you can't say, I'm going to um, commit this act of idolatry in order to make the Blessed Virgin Mary happy with me, or in order to achieve my own self-fulfillment. As soon as you say that, you think that idolatry is achieving your self-fulfillment, you're already turning yourself away from God. So you can have good intentions, 
But the fact is that good intentions don't make an act good. Good intentions means your intention is good, but the thing still might be something not worth doing. Now, the third element is what we call the circumstances, the when, the where, the how long are you doing it, and some of those things. And so, for instance, you can have an intention that is good, but it might be doing something circumstantially bad. So, for instance, you know, teenage boys in high school class, they might think it's funny to draw the swastika on the board, on the chalkboard. Their intention is to be joking, but the circumstances are it's not funny, that they're doing something stupid and they don't understand the deeper meaning of this thing that they're doing, that they're actually you know, promoting this evil ideology. Or for instance, some people, um, they might want to use herbs in order to feel better. And you say, okay, sure. You know, sometimes herbs can be quite, you know, efficacious and we can have, you know, either homeopathic remedies or you can take, um, you know, you can use some kind of uh, herbal pills or herbal supplements or something. You have a headache or whatnot, you need to sleep. Sure, herbs can make you feel better. But sometimes the circumstances in which these herbs are used are a problem. So I remember one time I was in uh, Mexico City and right outside of the cathedral, uh, cathedral in the, in the Plaza Mayor, and right outside... There is an, there was an old woman and she had sage and she was burning it and she's waving it around and she was like offering to wave the sage in front of people. She thought that by doing this, they could be protected from evil spirits. But the fact is either using the, those herbs to protect people from evil, it was either superstitious or it's demonic. But God doesn't use sage that way. He, he might allow us to use sage to flavor a meal or if it has some chemical property that's health you know, benefiting, we can use it that way. But sage doesn't directly involve the spiritual unless circumstantially people are misusing it. Okay, so just to review, we have the object of the act, the objective nature. We have the intention. What do you mean to do with it? And then finally, we have the circumstances. Now, when we're thinking about yoga, our chief question should not be, what are the circumstances like um, where am I doing it? What am I wearing? Or what are my intentions? What are the intentions of other people while they're doing it? The chief question about his morality is, what objectively is it? Now, to answer that question, um, we can say more specifically, are yoga postures just physical exercises? Objectively speaking, are they just physical things? And um, here are two examples. Are physical postures uh, yoga postures, just physical exercises. Here we have two of them, um, typical things. You can find this on Google like I did. And um, do they have any inherent meaning? Objectively speaking, what's going on? And, um, and, and I'll just give some uh, arguments that people will give in order to say they don't have inherent meaning. They are just physical exercises. So the first thing some people might say is all the physical actions are without inherent meaning. They're just physical, like the way I might scratch my beard or um, when you nod your head or something like that. I mean, there's no inherent meaning there. You're just scratching your beard. Or if you don't have a beard, you know, you're rubbing your chin. <laughs> um, so that's that's one kind of argument. Another kind of argument would say, well, okay, maybe scratching your beard doesn't mean anything. But of course, sometimes it might. Let's suppose that um, I'm, you know, I'm uh, a spy 
and and I tell my fellow spies that when I'm on the balcony and I scratch my beard, that's the signal to assassinate the um, the president of you know the country who's you know we're enemies with. In this case, now stroking or scratching my beard, it does mean something. Okay, so people might say, "All right, fine." Sometimes some physical actions have some symbolism, but. Physical exercise isn't really like that. Physical exercise, I'm not like symbolizing something like the spy would and stroking the beard. They would say something like, okay, okay, you're playing baseball, for instance. Baseball doesn't symbolize anything. If you talk about, say, the the aim of a baseball, it's to have fun. It's, um, you know, to uh, enjoy, you know, a great American pastime. But there's no like deeper meaning or symbolism in baseball as such. And likewise, tennis or Pilates or anything like that. Maybe you might go a little more specific. You can talk about things like, say, weightlifting or um, running or something. You might say, well, it doesn't symbolize something. It doesn't have like some deeper meaning. It's, you know, the goal is improve my cardiovascular function or to increase my muscle mass. And so the aim or the intention not only of the person, but of the thing itself, right? If I look at a runner, I'm like, what does that mean? Like, well, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a person running. Um, it just means that they're trying to get from one place to another <laughs> more quickly than the other guy. Okay, so there's no inherent meaning there. And, um, and people might think that yoga is like that. Now, in response, I would point out that um, yoga can't just be something like running. Yoga is actually closer to something like ballet, it's very interesting. I don't know if you've, um, you know, like witnessed a ballet or, you know, seen a, a, a ballet scene. I mean, personally, you know, I've been to a few and I, I didn't like it that much. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of like the music of Tchaikovsky and, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Nutcracker or um, uh, Swan Lake. But I mean, but when I watch ballet, I just like, I can't get into it. And, um, you know, I was there with a friend and, and he was trying to explain it to me. And he's like, okay, well, listen. He says, so you see, uh, this is the swan, and here's what's going on, and here's why they're dancing this way, and, and so on. And so he's trying to explain to me that like the dance has this symbolism. It's not like just random action on stage. They're doing something. And like, okay, I could actually see a plot. Nobody said anything. Words weren't used, just music. But if you follow it closely, you can kind of see what's going on, and the swan dies, and it's sad, and there's tragedy, and so on. You're like, okay, well, you know, not my cup of tea, but... I, I get it. Like the bodily movements in a ballet have a meaning. And I think that yoga is something like that. Now, some people might go on to say that, okay, fine, maybe, maybe yoga is closer to ballet. It's not just like neutral or content uh, less like running. Um, seems to have more symbolism than Pilates. That's pretty clear. But maybe they'll say, sure, those symbols in yoga are there. Some of them are related because of their ancient provenance, right? So I showed you uh, pictures in our last talk of um, yoga symbols going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And some, some yogis will say, you know, the, some of the symbolism goes back thousands of years. It, it, it's pretty hard to verify the thousands of years claim, but certainly the, um, the symbolism of some postures is verifiable, at least for a couple of hundred years. And people will say, fine. Okay, we admit that there's some embedded meaning, but that's old. That doesn't mean anything now. That's yoga of the past. 
maybe that's yoga in some mountaintop town, you know, like the one I went to, Rishikesh in, um, in India, the foot of the Himalayas, the Ganges River flowing by beautifully. There's, okay, fine. Maybe it means something there. It doesn't mean something in my yoga studio class. What are you talking about? And, and I think the answer to that is they're, they're misunderstanding how symbolism operates. Because it's true that symbolism operates within a community. But if I take my crucifix and I take my crucifix to a mosque or to a synagogue or I take it to Rishikesh, India, it's still a crucifix. The physical thing remains the same no matter what context it's in. And so likewise, I would say if, if there is an embedded meaning in a yoga posture, it remains no matter where you happen to be. If you're in the West or if you're in the East, if you're in the mountains or if you're on a beach. All right, fine. Last argument about physical postures. People will say, okay, fine. Maybe some yoga postures do have this embedded meaning no matter where you are. But the fact is that this is thin. I mean, does it really mean anything? Like, what are we talking about this, this embedded meaning anyway? How do, we even, how do we even know or how do we delve into what these meanings are? Well, the answer is, a number of yogis have actually described these meanings. I pointed out uh, last time that BKS Iyengar, in his book Light on Yoga, in, uh, in, in his section where he describes the asanas or the postures, he always provides a Sanskrit title to the posture. He'll often give you a translation in English. He'll give you the history. What does this mean? What does it mean in light of... Um, uh, the, the history of the development of the posture, who developed it, and what is the story within Hinduistic uh, religion? What does that mean within the story? And then what are the physical effects? Now, this thing, the light on yoga, this book is considered to be you know, the modern Bible of yoga. But there are many other books, actually, that talk about the symbolisms of yoga postures. But I'll just give you a couple of examples. Two physical postures to us as Westerners, here we have you know, women just wearing uh, yoga clothing, um, seems not to mean anything. But if we move forward, it actually means a lot. So first, the one on the left, it's called the monkey pose. The person doing the pose, he is a god called Hanuman. And he's, um, he's a monkey, as you can see, he has a little monkey tail. And um, the explanation is like this, that within this pose, you see how it actually has uh, the, the theme. It says reverence, faith, possibility, the leap of faith. The idea within Hinduism and yoga appropriating this element of Hinduism is that the monkey god is supposed to be the symbol of potential. And so when people do this pose, they're supposed to try to ask Hanuman for a participation in his own power that um, just as he has this tail that's raised. So likewise, this symbolizes something of how you are an animal, but also you can rise above yourself and you can transmute your animal instinct into love and spiritual power. And so it is said that when you engage in this posture, that you somehow are participating in or symbolizing Hanuman and his spiritual power to help you achieve things, to render the impossible possible. And on the right, we have the corpse pose, very well known. Some people might say, isn't this just a person laying down? 
Well, within yoga, that's just not the case, that this is uh, seen as Shiva. And you can see the snake wrapped around Shiva. Uh, the snakes are a very common symbol within yoga uh, iconography. And here it says to uh, represent bearing witness, stilling, uh, or inertia. Now, the, uh, the larger story to this is that Shiva is considered to be an avatar of this you know, divine um, being, and Krishna is, is an avatar as well. So Shiva is, was a typical yoga ascetic. He's in the mountains, he's away from everybody, and he refuses to have a child. Well, the gods don't like this. So they send down a goddess and the god of desire, sort of like what we would think of as Cupid. So the, the Hindu version of Cupid comes along and is going to shoot his arrows into Shiva. Shiva, with his yoga powers, defeats this god of desire. So the, the arrows of Cupid don't hit him. Well, what happens, though, is that because he doesn't have this desire anymore, he's not going to have a child because he's not going to unite with this goddess that appeared. So as he, um, as he realizes what he's done, the goddess reveals herself to be Kali. And Kali is the symbolism of the, the female goddess within yoga. She withdraws from Shiva, and he, no longer having desire, nor union with a woman, he falls down like a corpse. He ceases for a moment from um, being himself. He embraces, as it were, the death of his yogic self. And so the idea then is that when a person is in this prostrate state, having gone through all the different yoga postures, they are imitating this emptying of the self, similar to the way that Shiva lost his own self by losing his desire. And so when people are going through the, the beginning of the ritual in yoga, and they start out saying things very ritualistic, often they'll say namaste, the God in me greets the God in you, already this notion of self-divinity. They walk through a number of different postures, whatever they are, and then they end in the corpse pose. They are emptied of themselves, and this is because they've been, as it were, struck, or they, they have struck back against their own desire. And so now they have this um, non-being for just a moment. The turbulence of life leaves them behind, and they're now in stillness, trying to find union with this divine. Okay, all right, so there seems to be some kind of embedded meaning within these postures. And, um, and what I'm arguing is that um, in, in the yoga world, when you enter into these postures, this meaning is with you. Now, one of the questions that I got, many questions were about whether or not yoga is demonic. All right, we've seen these gods. Um, is yoga spirituality, the practice of these postures, is this demonic? And, and I'll say there are three kinds of arguments for why they're not. The first is that, well, frankly, it's offensive if you say they're demonic. <laughs> um, those who are uh, of a Hindu background or Indian background, people who um, uh, have practiced the poses, they would find this offensive that, that you say this. So, no, no, they're not. Of course, that's not really a great argument. Um, you know, sometimes truth hurts. And, um, you know, you have to tell your children um, that, uh, you know, too much sugar can harm them. Tell people, you know, smoking can give you cancer. So the fact that, you know, something can be offensive isn't really an argument for whether it's good or bad for you. 
that's kind of um, unfortunate that people might be uh, hurt by hearing something like that, but that itself is not an argument either way. I think a stronger argument is um, some people will say that the gods are just symbols, right? So we just looked at Hanuman, we looked at Shiva, and they don't really exist, right? I mean, these are just symbols of something else, or they're ideas that some people have, but the reality is there's one true God, and all those other things are sort of like myths and legends, um, it's like saying that, you know, a Marvel character has some power over me or, you know, if if I dress up like Captain America, that somehow that's going to influence my spiritual life. Like, that seems kind of silly. Well, I think the answer to that, to the second one, aren't the gods just symbols, is, first of all, that is offensive to a lot of <laughs> people who practice Hinduism. <laughs> They're like, you think you think that my god Hanuman, who helps me? who I offer sacrifices to? You think he's just like Captain America? Captain America was invented, you know, like this century. What are you talking about? Hanuman is a real god to them. So saying they're just symbols, I think, is is um, a dangerous kind of argument to make and will not make you friends. Okay, but let's suppose that people think that they are just symbols. This is not what St. Paul says. St. Paul says the gods of the pagans are demons. The gods of the pagans are demons. That's what he says. And he he says this in a context of trying to explain how it is that these gods can influence people. How is it that they have some power? And yet they're not the one true God. An example of this is when Moses was fighting against the um, the priests or the, what they call the, you know, the warlocks of Pharaoh. Moses, with divine power, can cast down his rod and it turns into a snake. These priests of Pharaoh, well, they throw down, or sorcerers throw down their rods, they turn into snakes as well. But they're only imitations of God's power because Moses's rod ends up devouring them. Moses, he pours um, something into the, the river Nile, it turns into blood. They can seemingly make water look like blood. So how do they do this? Well, they can't do this by their own power. They're not doing this just by smoke and mirrors. That The, the way that the ancient Jews understood this and the way the Christians understand this is that sorcerers can do things that are beyond natural powers with the help of demons. Properly speaking, that they cannot perform miracles but they can do things that are beyond what our own energy can produce. Because I'm human, I'm limited, I'm finite, I'm within the bounds of this fleshly world, but demons transcend that. They don't have divine power, but they do have what we call preternatural power. So we would say, actually, they're not just symbols or illusions or metaphors that the gods can indeed affect people's life, but of course only for the negative. Now, the third argument is um, I think this one is actually uh, perhaps closer to home for a lot of yoga practitioners in the West, which is not all yoga invokes the gods. Let's be honest. A lot of people are doing yoga. They're in a gym. They are maybe at home and they're not using Sanskrit chants. They don't have any statues nearby. They, um, they're not even thinking of any god. And they're like, how can that be an invocation of, of the god? Let's, let's, let's be really honest about people's own condition. And the answer that I would give to that one is um, 
uh, what an exorcist told me is, um, well, first I'll give the, the formal response is invocation of spirits is objectively embedded within the postures, whether a person knows it or not. And, and to explain how this could be the case, an exorcist gave, explained it to me this way. He said, the yoga postures are kind of like a telephone number. The telephone number, it, it puts you in contact with another person. Now, sometimes I dial a telephone number and that person doesn't respond. But if I dial that telephone number enough, the other person will pick up the phone. And, and this is basically the idea of um, how the embedded meaning within the yoga posture operates, even if you don't know it. You know, like you can have a child and you can give your child your cell phone in order to play a game and they accidentally hit a couple buttons and now they've just rung up grandma. Your child didn't know it. They didn't know what they're doing, but that's that's what happened. They accidentally called somebody. Your child might pick up your phone, open up your bank app, and now they've, you know, <laughs> sent a bunch of money to, to somebody. You see, these things can actually operate even if you don't know how they work. There are all sorts of things in the world. I mean, the fact is, we don't even know how cell phones work. Cell phones are like magic to us. How's, how does this little glowing rectangle put me in contact with somebody across the world? It's astonishing. So the point is that there can be embedded meaning, embedded power that operates even if you don't know it. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Let's look at these next poses. Is yoga spirituality demonic? Well, here we have this pose. Um, it's related to the uh, what's called the lotus pose. This one, in this case, is um, called the navel pose. And the understanding is when somebody is doing this, within a yoga context, that they actually are somehow doing what Vishnu does. You can see, this is one of the largest statues. You can see the statue, if you, could, if you notice the photo on the right, in the lower corner, you see the size of it, it's probably about 45 foot tall. People will sit in that cross-legged position, their hands, once again, in a mudra, um, and the mudra is meaning to invoke the gods. And when they do this, that it's like dialing this telephone number to call up that god who people say passed on that uh, symbolic physical action. I'll give you another one that's a little more powerful. Let's look at the next example. This is Kali, the goddess pose. Look, if you just look at the cartoon on the right, it looks so fine and nice. You see, she's just stretching. She does have kind of a weird look in her eyes. Um, I purposely chose the cartoon and not, you know, not some specific woman. Um, but if you look at the left, this is what it symbolizes. This is the Kali, the destructive mother. Her worship demands sacrifice. People actually sacrifice in India, chickens and goats, to that image. And, um, and notice in her hands, one holds a sword, the power of destruction. She holds a severed head in her other hand on the opposite side. This is her capacity to conquer your enemies. When I, w when I was in India... Someone offered me a statue and they said, oh, Kali can defeat your enemies. Have a statue and she will help you out. Oh my gosh, I don't want that person in my room. Um, she's wearing a necklace made of severed heads. She's sticking out her tongue. But notice where her feet are. This is very significant. Her feet are standing on top of Shiva. Remember I talked to you about the corpse pose? Here is Kali. So sometimes people will imitate the goddess and other times they imitate the god being stepped upon. You see, all of these postures have an embedded meaning. 
And the idea then is that when people engage in these, that they become more vulnerable to this uh, spiritual influence. Now, to, to back up a little bit, um, people can sometimes feel overwhelmed to discover that there might be this embedded meaning and it can actually operate even aside from their intention. And they, they wonder whether or not this is just a little too, a little too rich. Um, isn't this something that really we need to back up and just look at yoga in a different perspective? Um, maybe, maybe this is true for some people, or maybe it's true for people who, um, know about it or they intend to open themselves up to those things. And sometimes people will just say, you know, I think really yoga is an exercise and it's an exercise for women. And so, you know, if you uh, Google search, um, let's look at the next slide here. Yoga. There you go. You can see the results of my Google search. Notice it's all women. <laughs> Why is yoga associated with women? Well, um, I, I tried to find, oh, let's, let's look at the next Google search that I had. Yoga India. Okay. Are there any men? Well, um, there's, there's one man, um, in the center there. Okay. So it's a mixture of men and women and, um, and people kind of have this question as to aside from its, um, uh, meanings within Hinduism is yoga like exercise for women, you know, men weight lift and women do yoga. And, um, and, and, and I think that a couple of things to note about the, his, the, the history of yoga is, first of all, um, only men for centuries were allowed to, to do yoga. Very interesting. It was actually restricted to the higher, higher castes, the Brahmins, and, um, and actually all of the original founders of modern yoga, including BKS Iyengar and others, they were all from that high caste. They were Brahmins. They were technically priests. Hindu priests, they could perform sacrifices, some of them did, and they brought yoga to the West. So why is it that um, only men could practice yoga, but now, at least you know, in the West, something like you know, 80% of all of yoga practitioners are women? So what's going on there, and, and why, why is yoga so bound up with the feminine in our modern understanding? Well, what's really interesting is when um, British soldiers came to India in the 17 and 1800s, and they saw um, these Brahmins practicing yoga, um, they thought that the Brahmins were kind of effeminate. They actually said that the yoga made them feminine. So they, they, they even saw something feminine back then. Um, whether or not that's true, or is that racist, uh, you know, I don't want to get into those questions, but just asking the question again, why does yoga seem to be tied to the feminine? The answer is the following. I believe, now this is just Father Ezra, you know, speculation what do i know um but I, I think i think that there's a there's a particular temptation um you know men have their temptations and women have their temptations and i think there's one temptation that is more uh to which women are more vulnerable namely to try to find the divine within to try to think that somehow they are participating in divinity because of their femininity or put it this way, by means of these physical postures, that they can somehow tap into the divine. I think there's something that uh, resonates with a lot of women, partly because of their potential for motherhood, right? That women participate in growing a child, bringing life to the world. And, and that's almost like um, this participation in God's own creative act. God creates the soul out of nothing. And through the woman's 
act of conception, this is like receiving the divine. She conceives it within herself, and now it grows and becomes this living being. And so there's there's a kind of way in which um, yoga's proposal that by doing all of these actions that you can somehow tap into the divinity within. You discover your own divinity. That it plays into um, some of this some of this thinking that women are more vulnerable too. Um, most men don't think that way. Most men aren't thinking like, oh, by lifting weights, you know, I'm becoming divine. Like, oh, now I'm, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like he's like somehow, you know, more divine because he, he has more muscles or something. And guys don't look at him and think that. And guys don't even like aim at that. Um, like, you know, our temptations are, are distinct. Um, so, so this goes back to this notion then about the symbolism of yoga. How does this tapping into the divinity within relate to Kali, Hanuman, and all these other poses where I've just said that I think there's going to be some embedded meaning and vulnerability there. Well, the answer that very clever yogis will give is they'll say, okay, all those poses with their various symbolisms and meanings, those are superficial. Those are like the mythologies that we tell children. But the deepest meaning is that by doing any pose, you can discover divinity within. Once you control your emotions, which are always going crazy, once you stop your mind from being too worried, once you calm yourself down and have less anxiety, now you can discover divinity within. And so it plays one into the other. So some people will call upon the gods when they do their yoga uh, practices, and this is encouraged in some yoga journals. They'll actually encourage people to use Sanskrit chants to call upon Hanuman or Ganesh or Kali or whoever. And others will say, but then transcend that and discover that you are the divine. You don't need those other things. You can go above it. But you see, it's still an idolatry. Now it's an idolatry of the self. If you think that you're divine simply by performing some action, you're no longer dependent on God. And instead, you think that you can discover divinity simply because of your own energy and effort. And so that leads us to the question, is yoga spirituality compatible with Catholic spirituality? And some people uh, in emailing me, they said, but St. Peter, doesn't he say that we can participate in the divine nature? And doesn't Jesus say, you are gods? And so can't we get rid of some of the problematic parts, the metaphorical parts, or the symbolic parts related to um, evil spirits? And can't we emphasize the good parts, discover divinity within by recognizing that God is with us? Well, the answer is that, well... <laughs> Catholics don't think that we have God within on our own efforts. And furthermore, God is always distinct from me and you. I will never worship you. I'll never recognize the God within you because you are not God. And likewise, I'm not God. I'm a failing, fallible human creature. My being is distinct from God's being. God is personal, three persons. We can pray to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if God dwells within me by grace and I am his temple through the Holy Spirit poured out upon me, it is because I know God and I love God and I love the persons who make up the Holy Trinity. And so I'm not discovering that I am the Holy Trinity. I'm rather recognizing that I am friends with the Holy Trinity. And just as I was never confused myself with my friend, I might love my friend a lot. And sometimes people say a friend is another self. Fair enough. But I don't really think that 
he's me. <laughs> In fact, that'd be a pretty one-sided conversation if my friend was me. <laughs> and so likewise, when we think about this notion of God within, we have to recognize that you always remain who you are for all eternity. Yourself is never dissolved. Yourself is never absorbed within the divine. You are always you. And so the basic answer then is yoga spirituality is not compatible with Catholic spirituality. And, um, and it's, it's, it's quite, in fact, dangerous and tempting to adopt a yoga spirituality because it pretends that it can bring all things within it, that all different um, religions can practice yoga according to their own traditions. People will say, you can be Jewish and practice yoga. You can be Muslim and practice yoga, or you can be Christian. What's the problem? Well, the answer is, once it's all relativistic, then of course you can practice it because it doesn't think there's truth to be found in Catholicism as distinct from other kinds of religions and philosophies. But of course, we know the difference. And so then the question is, if, if it's incompatible, then how can or should yoga postures be adapted? And we're running out of time, so I'm going to just have to list these very quickly. And I'll say the only way to actually adapt yoga postures is basically by uh, transforming them entirely. I would recommend to people never go to a yoga studio. Um, you have to change your intention is not to become divine by practicing these things. I want to do an exercise. You change your communication. You don't say words like namaste. You don't talk about uh, the, the things that they do in their meditations. You don't use that kind of language or believe those things. And you have to change the physical posture itself. If you want to call a different person, you use a different phone number. And likewise, if we want to do an exercise, I would say you have to change the posture in some way in order to no longer be doing yoga. You actually have to change it. All right. Well, how should Catholics pray with their bodies? Well, I would say that first, of course, there's the Holy Liturgy. And, you know, we have some uh, Eastern Catholics. Um, they stand during Holy Liturgy. They'll bend down. They cross themselves many times. And, and so they have a kind of more um, active calisthenic <laughs> in their holy liturgy. But of course, you know, even Western Catholics, uh, we Romans, we sit and kneel, we stand. And, um, and then you have the priest, he has certain gestures, elements that he performs with his body in holy liturgy. And then we also have public devotions, things like processions, worship of the Blessed Sacrament. We kneel down before the Blessed Sacrament. And sometimes you'll see within, say, a Blessed Sacrament Chapel, people will um, bow their head to the ground in adoration of our Eucharistic lore. But also there are private devotions. And I want to leave you with this, that St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominicans, in the Middle Ages, he had his nine ways of prayer. People witnessed this, and um, in his lifetime, they, they wrote down what he taught. And, um, and then soon after his death, this manuscript that I'm showing you here was uh, illustrated to try to teach people these nine ways of bodily prayer. So this is around uh, the, the year 1260 in a monastery in Bologna where St. Dominic had lived for some time where he died. And um, they show us these different ways. And so the one we're looking at right here is his fourth way. And um, the author says, St. Dominic would remain before the altar. Notice that he's gazing on the crucified Christ. 
he would genuflect again and again. And so this is supposed to show us motion. He's genuflecting and he's standing. He's genuflecting. He would bend his knees to God in this way. And so that when he finished his travels, when he came to his cell, while his companions were sleeping, he would genuflect over and over again in order to show his homage to his Lord. Here's another way. I'll show you a couple more in the next one. We have St. Dominic stretching out his arms to the cross, uh, imitating Christ in a physical manner, looking at the crucified one and showing how he wants to join Christ on the cross and accept all sufferings with him. We have uh, St. Dominic with his hands held up like an arrow, pointing to the sky, pleading with God to receive mercy. And then the last one um, is one that's particular to us Dominicans, is prayer as a means of study or study as a means of prayer. St. Dominic would sit quietly. He'd make the sign of the cross, and he would open up a book and say to the Lord, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And this way, we say that to study can be a mode of prayer. And so I just want to encourage you then to pray with your bodies and to do so in such a way that is devout, that is um, fitting to the kind of um, prayer that you're trying to make. And finally, I would just ask, uh, people ask me the question, should Catholics mix prayer and exercise? I'll point out that our Lord says to pray at all times and never cease to pray. That's absolutely true. Of course, not all forms of prayer are appropriate at all times, right? I'm not going to celebrate Holy Mass um, in the middle of, um, you know, uh, let's say we're having, um, there's a wedding, and then afterwards in the dance floor, then like, oh, Father Ezra wants to pray right now. Oh, oh everybody stop dancing, and we're going to have a Mass in the middle. The, we're, we're not going to do that. And likewise, there are going to be some kinds of prayer that may be um, appropriate more to private devotion. And so I'd say things like the nine ways of prayer are not communal prayer. Those are private prayer. Um, I don't I don't think it would be even uh, like a very Catholic thing if we all, now we're going to stretch out our arms like St. Dominic all together within a gymnasium or something. Because then that starts to get into a, like a sort of paraliturgy. Um and the trouble is that when people try to make their exercise a prayer, often really it's because they want to feel spiritual without praying. They don't want to spend time with God. What they want to do is lose weight and then, like, you know, make that their prayer. Yeah. And I, would, I would just point out, too, St. Paul says that exercise is good for bodily health, but prayer is good at all times. So, so yes, exercise, but even more so, pray. And um, don't try to think that your exercise is prayer just because it's painful. <laughs> Some, a number of people have asked me, Father, can I offer up the pain in my exercise to, to God as a spiritual sacrifice? And I, and I said, well, I mean, you, we can offer up everything to God that's good. You know, it's not a sin. We can offer everything good to God. However, I think we want to just be careful not to fool ourselves as to why we're doing it, that you know, sacrifice is one of the reasons why we say that the three you know, spiritual modes are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is because things like fasting is specifically, it doesn't have another goal. It's not weight loss plus prayer. Fasting is, is the restriction of food, and it in itself has its own power. So, so I think that keeping your intention clear about what you're up to can hopefully help you to avoid um, the trap of yoga, 
which thinks that simply by doing some physical action, I'm going to become more holy and be united with the divine. All right, we've said a lot, but that's all we can say for now. So thank you and God bless you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Ezra, for uh, your your excellent presentation uh, in, in both parts last week and, uh, and this morning. All of your, uh, well, 10 years of study and grappling with these questions clearly bore fruit uh, for everybody here uh, with us in this series. It was uh, uh, just, I appreciate your, your Thomistic approach um, in anticipating objections and working through, you know, the, the, the best that has been said uh, against your position, but ultimately, you know, giving a very compelling case. We'll still have some time here for questions. Let's start with the first one up on screen. Rebecca, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself and ask your question. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, prayer before saints and statues and sort of the iconography, Um, especially you said something about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so you brought up um, how they use also their gods and praying in front of them and doing sacrifices. Um, and I've seen the Blessed Virgin Mary, especially Our Lady of Guadalupe, like when I've passed by like tarot card reading places and things, it's kind of confusing. I'm not sure why they do that. But um, so I wanted to bring that question up because I am wondering about the idolatry part. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, that's a great question. So first, we know that um, people can misuse uh, holy things, right? And Satanists will steal the blessed sacrament, and it remains Jesus in the midst of their profanation. And likewise, um, if tarot card readers, um, you know, use a, an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Guadalupe, or e- even Hindu shrines, some of them actually have statues of Jesus. <laughs> and um, so it's it's a profanation. It's a it's a misuse of what is a, a holy thing. Um, so I would just say that um, that doesn't mean that uh, that the symbol loses its own inherent meaning. It just means that people are trying to use it in, in a wrong way. And that's actually part of why it's so evil is um, that the, the misuse of a picture of Our Lady now is trying to, I think often tarot card readers, I mean, I, I don't know, I've never talked to them, but I suspect they're trying to use it to try to hook people in. You know, some Protestants will actually put our Lady of Guadalupe up in their churches in Mexico to try to confuse simple people into thinking that it's a Catholic church. And um, the Protestants have no interest whatsoever in praying to Our Lady, but they use it as a way to try to pull people in. So um, I'm not sure if that's answering your question. Thank you, Father. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, take another one uh, coming in uh, in written form. Actually, there's, there's a bunch of them. I'm going to try to group some of them together here. Um, basically, of course, a lot of people asking the practical question, right, is, uh, you know, has anybody developed a Catholic version of the yoga positions or, or you know, I guess, how would how would you answer with the, with what you've seen around the various options out there for exercise programs? How would you answer the uh, the adaptation question that you put at the end? Have you seen something that that works for Catholics? Yeah, good question. So um, so, so first of all, I'll say um just a little plug. Um, I'm, I'm writing a book on this topic because I've received so many questions about it. And, um, and it's going to have everything footnoted. I've been reading um, lots of materials, lots of interviews with people from all parts of the spectra. And um, 
And so that book, I hope, hopefully will be available next year. Um, so I, I have still some work to do, but this will be a, a definitive work on it. I've been asked by a number of bishops actually to do this. So hopefully, if you're not convinced by um, the short talk, then um, you can see all the footnotes and see what you think later. But um, the answer to the adaptation question is is very difficult. And I have personally not seen one that I can fully 100% endorse. Because what I find is um, even people who try to, say, get rid of the language of yoga, they try to get rid of the philosophy of yoga, uh, often they're still using the poses. And I, I just don't see why that's necessary. It seems to me that if, if there's any kind of spiritual danger, you don't put yourself in spiritual danger. Let's just um, be honest about our own spiritual vulnerabilities. And even if there's like a possibility that using um, yoga postures in like a completely Christian context could be spiritually safe, um, it seems to me that there's still a vulnerability there. Given my, my experience in talking with people, working with people who brought themselves out of yoga and working with exorcists in three different countries, three different continents, um, it seems to me that I, I have not seen an adaptation that's really adequate because nobody actually likes to change the postures. They'll try to change the language or some of those exterior things. And, um, and, and so I think that that's the real challenge. And so, so the answer is no, there's not one that I can fully endorse um, because of that issue. I'd like to follow that question up then with, with, with another one, maybe taking it a little further. Um, and that would be, you know, using your, your example of dialing up somebody's phone number accidentally, right, by, by using the, the posture or finding, getting into that posture. Um, is there a level of intentionality to it? Uh, just imagine somebody, somebody might, you know, as stretching, not even referencing a yoga pose, but might accidentally strike one. Um, is there a danger there? I mean, I, I see the corpse pose and I think that's how I sleep every night by opening myself up to something. So what, what, what would you, you know, add to add to that? Okay. So, so the answer is, um, there are some, there's some physical movements that are common to lots of different exercises and some of them are natural, right? So the corpse pose, um, de depending on how people do it, but if you're just laying down, to lay down is a natural thing to do. No problem at all. Uh, to bend forward, you're, you're touching your toes. That's something that you do. Um, there are a lot of different like ways of releasing tension in your hamstrings, and we could look at um, exercises in, say, or you know, stretching in ballet or what runners do, swimmers, there's all sorts of ways of stretching in order just to loosen your muscles up. However, a yoga pose, if you know it's a pose, like the Hanuman thing, the point about that, the reason why, why I showed that is nobody just happens to do that. There might be some stretches that are similar, but, but when you have your hands up in that way and you say to yourself, I know it's a yoga pose, but I'm doing it anyway. That is where you open yourself up to all those other elements. Whereas, um, you know, some things that, they, that people call yoga, which are actually in common with a lot of other uh, physical exercises, I don't think those are yoga at all. And so um, part of the difficulty is you're like, well, how do I know what's a yoga pose and what's not? Well, the answer is, if you're doing normal exercise, then you're not doing yoga. As soon as you say to yourself, well, I know it's, I know it's yoga, but that's when you're doing yoga. There we go. Uh, we'll take another one on screen here. Kathy, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Um, I have a question about doing prayer. Like when I go on my walks, I often say a rosary. 
before I pray. I'm doing it both to get a good walk in and to pray. When my husband swims, he says a mantra and it counts his laps the way he says it. He says a certain number of prayers and that helps him count. What do you say to someone who does have those practices? Oh yeah, I, I think that's I think that's wonderful. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, uh, one of St. Dominic's nine ways of prayer is praying while he's walking. And, um, you know, John Paul II, he'd pray the rosary when he would walk. And frankly, so do I, because often I, that's the only time I have a chance to get a walk in. So um, the, the thing I was trying to warn about, and maybe I, I wasn't very clear, um, is that what I want people to, to be clear about in their own mind is the physical act of walking is not going to make you more holy. Um, you know, similar to like people thinking, oh, if I lift weights, you know, then, you know, then finally I'll be able to like um, be a real man or something. You're like, well, being a man is not about lifting weights. Like you can be a man and, um, and not lift weights or you can lift weights and still <laughs> be a little boy, you know? So, um, so the point is that the physical thing itself is not what leads you to, to spiritual holiness, but um, to, to, to pray while you're doing something actually can be a great thing. Like I often recommend to people when they're driving, you know, when they're driving home from their, uh, work and the long commute, like turn off the radio, pray while you drive. It's a moment of solitude with you and God. So, um, so I, I think that what you're doing, Kathy is great and keep it up. Thanks father. Could you, this, a uh, number of questions, uh, about other, practices and maybe you could help you know open up your your principles that you use for this analysis to help us apply them to others so a lot of people ask about things like tai chi uh kung fu other things with spiritual and philosophical backgrounds um can you help us you know translate the 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 analysis that you made with yoga um as people are looking around at the landscape of some of these other practices as well Oh boy. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, okay. Father Ezra does not have infinite knowledge. So, uh, I, I'm, we're, we're like reaching, you know, the, the borders of, of my, my knowledge, uh, area. And I, I mentioned this last time because the, these questions often arise for people. Um, so things like Reiki are definitely not Catholic. It's not an exercise. It's been condemned by the Catholic bishops. It's at best superstition. It's at worst trying to bring these energies in the world um, to heal people. And the fact is, it becomes demonic because there are no energies like in the air. There's no vibrations. Chakras don't exist. So any, any kind of action that you're doing, physical action to try to bring these energies down, is going to be superstitious or it's going to be ultimately demonic. Now, that's distinct from something like um, a martial art like Kung Fu or karate tai chi is like if we have like if, if you can imagine um, a line and on one on one end is like purely spiritual uh, actions with like physical components like i'm kneeling while i'm praying then there's like purely physical actions um like unboxing okay tai chi is closer to the spiritual end and something like karate is closer to the boxing end and within asian martial arts part, partly depends on the dojo you're going to Partly depends on the actual thing, like I said, Tai Chi versus karate. Um, but the difference is that, that with something like karate or with Kung Fu is um, the purpose of it embedded within the physical actions is actually an exterior object. It's to defend yourself or to defeat an enemy. Whereas something like um, Reiki 
it's purely spiritual. It's just like, I'm trying to heal people. Like, well, how, like through the air, through the oxygen, like, how am I doing it? So, um, so I would just say when, when people are thinking about doing these different martial arts to be aware of what does the physical thing mean? And then what's the philosophy bound up within it? And don't put yourself into a dojo where they're talking about this philosophy. It could be very easy to try to adopt it. And then people start to think that their chi grows stronger by means of this physical action. And now it's you're getting into superstition. That is very helpful. Thank you, Father. We've got just maybe a couple minutes. Let's get one more question in here uh, on screen. Norman, go ahead. Question that I have is how much of our Catholic clergy know about these things? Um, some parishes actually offer yoga classes. And I'm concerned about that because um, apparently even if these, uh, you know, the, the yoga is not uh, compatible with Catholic principles, Catholic teaching, um, some priests even actually defend it, de- defend the practice. And, and they say that it, it helps their parishioners. And sometimes they even then they themselves do it. Yeah, no, great question, Norman. And and um, one of the reasons why I started doing research on this is because there were so many questions about it. And it's such a complex issue. Um, there are a lot of disagreements. When I went to India, um, one of the bishops told me, he said that um, that there are, a lot of, there are a lot of syncretists within India and they're Catholics who want to do yoga in order to reach out to Hindus and they want to say, look, we can do this thing in common. And, and you know, on uh, in the West, you know, in the United States, for instance, you know, some, some Catholic priests, they think it's good for people, you know, physically, but also it always has this spiritual tinge to it because you don't, you don't find parishes that are offering just, you know, spin cycle classes or weightlifting. Can you imagine a parish is like, okay, we're going to have like the men's group and we're going to weightlift every Saturday morning. People will be like, well, why are you doing at the parish? That doesn't even make sense. He's like, because, you know, it's like our manly time together. And some some guys might like that. If you say, for instance, okay, Knights of Columbus has weightlifting every Saturday morning. Um, well, first, I think they'd get a lot more recruits, honestly. And then some of those guys could lose their beer belly. But, um, but the other part is that people would think, like, that's not something you need to do at a Catholic church. But somehow people think that yoga is okay. Why? Because it is spiritual. That's the whole point. People think it's okay to do at the, at the parish because it involves the spiritual component, but they falsely believe that that spiritual component is compatible. So, so I think that we just have to be honest about what our embedded understanding is of yoga as a physical act. And why is it that it has a privileged place within this parish in the first place? Now, what can we do about it? Um, there's, there's nothing on the market. There are no Catholic books about this topic. I have looked, believe me. Um, I, there's as far as I know, one bishop who has written about this, the bishop that I visited in India, Joseph Kalarangat, he originally wrote his, his uh, very short 10-page essay in Mayalam. They translated it into English, and it's in a book that you can't buy. So it, 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 it's, it's, it makes sense that people would not know this and priests would not know this. So I don't blame them, and, um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to offer to um, my brothers and sisters is hopefully we can get this out. We can help people to help them to think more clearly about this. And, um, and hopefully we can kind of dispel some of these, um, errors that people have or misunderstandings. 
Well, that's excellent, Father. Thank you again from all of us. And you've now deputized, you know, the hundreds of ICC members who are here with us to go and spread the word about this and uh, and help move the conversation forward because it's so important for us uh, in today's world. So God bless you all. Hope to see you back at the ICC again very soon. Have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.